0: Welcome to the New Books Network. So hello everybody and welcome to New Books and Catholic Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This channel and episode were created in collaboration with the American Catholic Historical Association, a conference of scholars, archivists, and teachers of Catholic studies. My name is Carlos Ruiz Martinez and I'm a host on the channel. Today I'm joined by a co-host, Alison Isidore. How are you doing today, Allison?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course, and today we'll be talking to Kate Moran, who's an associate professor in the Department of American Studies at St. Louis University. Kate Moran is the author of The Imperial Church, Catholic Founding Fathers, and United States Empire, published by Cornell University Press in 2020. In this book, Moran examines how, during the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, Americans memorialized a Catholic past in order to craft a vision of a U.S. empire that incorporated Catholic figures, such as Père Marquette or Junipero Serra. Kate, welcome to New Books in Catholic Studies.
1: Thank you so much, Carlos.
0: Glad to have you.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about your academic uh, formation and trajectory? How have your uh, intellectual interests formed and shifted? Sorry.
2: (laughs) Sure, Alison. Thanks for
1: the question. Um,
2: I think actually, you know, I've been interested for a long time through most of my academic training in U.S. history in some form and in religious studies in another, and particularly in the study of Catholicism and U.S. history and culture. Um, I think that probably if a transformation happened for me, the biggest transformation happened after I got my Ph.D. I got my Ph.D. in history. Um, And then I did what, you know, many, probably most people do at this point is that I, I kind of jumped around from different... Job and different department to different job and different department. And so I taught in religion departments. I d- had a tenure track job teaching 4 4 in a history department at the University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point, which was a really great history department. Um, I did a stint teaching American studies in Germany for a year. And as a result of this, I think I came out of kind of the close focus on my own research and became much more attuned to kind of the larger narratives of U.S. history and to the fractures and the fissures within them. And that really affected the book. That changed the way I thought about what the book was doing.
1: Yeah. Um, So before we dive into the book, um, can you tell us about how you came into this particular project? You know, how did you come to be interested in how the Catholic past was uh, evoked by Protestants and Catholic uh, Americans alike? Uh, to talk about the imperial expression, expansion, sorry.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is I didn't actually become interested in that because I didn't know that that was what I was writing about, that this was my dissertation book. And um, you know, if there are any graduate students listening to this podcast, I should note that I did not know what it was about until after the dissertation was over um, that I started because I was in a program studying U S cultural and intellectual history. And as I was reading through a lot of work on that, I was realizing that Catholicism was almost never mentioned, and when it was, it was in the context most often of anti-Catholicism. Um, you know, there's a lot about kind of like Maria Monk and the uh, you know American Protective Association. Um, And yet there were all of these other examples, particularly from the period I was most interested in, the late 19th and early 20th century, of non-Catholic people kind of embracing or invoking elements of Catholic faith and history and practice in ways that didn't really fit into anti-Catholic kind of expectations. Um, And so I became really interested in that. I was really inspired first by um, Jackson Lear's book, No Place of Grace, and by the work of Jenny Franchot, and I initially thought that what I was writing on, what I wanted to write on, was kind of attractions to Catholic forms like neo-Gothic architecture, and and this eventually led me to California, actually, where I where I started. Which you know, with this explosion of interest in of interest in the missions, um, and if you have spent any time in California, you can see how you know those forms are just still written across the landscape. Um, and as I was doing more of that work and kind of thinking about how um, the project would get put together, I realized after a while that what I was really writing about was empire. Um, and, it, and, and But that I only realized through doing the research.
0: Great. Uh, so okay, I take your uh, argument to be that during the um, Gilded Era and Progressive Age, um, Americans with, with Protestant and Catholic alike um, sort of... Crafted a very romanticized, idealized vision of a a Catholic past in order to uh, justify um, sort of US empire. Um, And and, and white uh, Protestant Catholics turned to to different figures to do this work, right? You take us to the Midwest, to Southern California and to uh, the Philippines to do this work. In the first part of your book, you focus on the Midwest and and Jacques Marquette. Um, Can you elaborate on that? So tell us, for the non-specialist, who was Jacques Marquette? um, Who was invested in his commemoration and why? And how was he actually commemorated?
2: Sure. Um, Thanks, Carlos. Marquette was a French Jesuit who helped explore the Mississippi. He he did a number of things, but he became famous for helping to explore the Mississippi in 1673. And, He started to become really famous for this in a kind of very public commemorated way in the upper Midwest in the 1870s, which is where I come in and my book comes in. And at this time, there is already this kind of interest in commemoration in general. And, you know, historians have traced this back to um, kind of a post-Civil War abandonment of Reconstruction moment when um, a number of white Northerners and southerners are engaging in kind of all kinds of nationalist commemoration in part as a way to kind of imaginatively knit the nation back together. Um, this was also a moment when there were a lot of amateur and professionalizing historians in the upper Midwest, and there were sources about Marquette that were becoming available. So it all kind of came together in this one particular moment. And what it came together to produce was this quite varied and very active celebration of Marquette, that there were postage stamps, there were tons of speeches given at Um, Amateur and professional historians associations, Um, there was a political, a Republican political club named after him that had nothing to do with, you know, the French or, you know, religion or the Mississippi, but they just kind of took him on as a a mascot almost and had like a painting of Marquette in the corner of their main room and they used to imagine that he was giving them advice. Um, There is a skyscraper. It's actually a a low building in comparison now, but it used to be considered a skyscraper in Chicago named after Marquette. Um, So anyway, he was just really widely celebrated and he was celebrated, I argue, for two main reasons um, or in two main ways. One was that he was most often called, if anyone was going to give him a title, most often it was going to be the first white man in the era in the area. Um, he was called the first white man of, you know, Wisconsin, of Michigan, of the Mississippi, of all kinds of things. And um, so he was kind of figured as this white founding figure. And as such, he was compared to other national founding figures to the Puritans and the Pilgrims most explicitly. And the idea was to elevate him to a kind of, you know, as a regional representative in a national founding story. And a, um, and that this was done quite literally in a place called the National Statuary Hall, which is a great place to think about historical commemoration. It's, you know, you should go to the website now all the statues are still in the nation's capital there's two statues from each state and marquette was sent by the state of wisconsin um and so so part of my argument is that this really was about a way of extending what had been a very kind of east coast centric um origin story of the nation to encompass um the Midwest as well. And in doing so, it expands that origin story um, to include the French, it it expands it to include Catholics, um, but it also makes it about this kind of notion of a common um, Christian evangelizing and quote-unquote civilizing project that grounded the founding of the nation. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing that happened in a lot of Marquette commemorations was that he was described as a particularly gentle imperial figure. He, One historian at the time called him a peaceful conqueror, um, which is an amazing kind of oxymoronic phrase. Um, and, you know, what I argue is that This was he became this valuable figure because he allowed people to imagine that this kind of peaceful conquest had occurred in the past was part of the roots of uh, the imperial nation and could also be adopted in the future as a way of, um, you know, engaging in imperial pursuits in a way that was kind of gentle and even with the consent of those um, who were being conquered. And Marquette proved to be a great example for this, um, probably most famously in one example where he's not even named. At the end of Longfellow's epic poem, The Song of Hiawatha, Marquette's journals were the basis for uh, a kind of figure Marquette, or uh, sorry, Longfellow calls mm-hmm. Um, the Black robe chief, the prophet, who comes in at the very end of the poem, at the very end of the poem to kind of usher Hiawatha stage, which is an ending that Hiawatha is made to embrace. Um, and that people who celebrated Marquette at the time really knew that he was the example from which this figure was drawn. His words so from his journal are in the poem, um, and this was part of the celebration of Marquette. Great,
0: thank you. And so in, in, After thinking about how a French Catholic colonial past was uh, celebrated, you move in part two of your book um, to Southern California, and you think about how uh, Spanish missionaries like uh, Junipero Serra were celebrated and and remembered uh, to almost naturalize your Southern colonialism. Um, Who was Serra and and who was celebrating California's uh, Spanish missionary past and to what ends?
2: Yeah, so Sarah was um, a Spanish or actually a Majorcan Franciscan who was um, kind of responsible for the founding of what became a chain of 12 missions running up and down the coast of California. The first one was founded around 1769, I believe, the last one around 1833, Um, and he began to be celebrated. Um, And those missions began to be really celebrated around the 1880s, in part as a result of um, a kind of influx of Protestant white settlers to california to Southern California which until then even after even after california became a state um, Southern california was still majority Spanish speaking there weren't for a while a lot of white settlers there they start coming thanks to a number of things including a railway rate war that made coming out there very cheap um, they start coming around the 1880s and there's this intense fascination with these mission buildings some of which are in ruins some of which um, are being used as parish churches But they are taken up by kind of Anglo boosters at the time as almost a California brand. So if you think about kind of what was happening with Marquette in the upper Midwest, and then you imagine it as, you know, hugely commodified and in kind of hyper color. That's what was happening in Southern California with Unipero Serra and the missions. And you can still see that if you go around Southern California today, inspired an architectural style that is still very common. It inspired pageants and plays and novels. Um, there was this famous and still existing, you can still stay there, hotel called the Mission Inn, which was meant to look like a kind of gigantic mission. Um, Local railroads ran tourist itineraries and advertised them to the missions, so it became a way of thinking about um, the California past. And like Marquette, like the celebration of Marquette, did a couple things. One was that Unibrocero was also described as a founder. His statue also ended up in Statuary Hall, but later. um, But he was described as the kind of founder of California. Um, and compared also to the Pilgrims and the Puritans. Um, And this was done in a somewhat different way in California. And one of the things, you know, I'll be stressing here kind of continuities for coherence sake, but one of the things that the books gets into is that these were very different places. And so even though similar things were happening, there were also kind of different, exigent circumstances. So in California, for example, the celebration of Sarah was also done in a way that served in part to delegitimize the recent Mexican era and in other ways to atone for Anglo violence in um, the process of settler colonialism in the era, um, which I go into in the book. The other big thing that that was happening in the Sarah commemorations, I argue, is that he was being invoked much like Marquette was as a kind of model for civilizing empire. And that this came out in a whole bunch of ways, some of which were more predictable than others. So somewhat predictably, he was invoked by folks interested in Uh, the assimilation of indigenous people. There was an off-reservation Indian boarding school near the Mission Inn, and it was created in mission style, and some of the students there were um, recruited to play Indians in some kind of pageants about Sarah, Um, so there was very much this link, this idea that um, the era of Sarah could be kind of redone in the era of boarding schools, Um, but there were also there are also links that seem, I think, much more unpredictable to us now. I think my my favorite one of these is that he was really invoked by boosters at the time who were funded by this rising Anglo oligarchy, which was very anti union. He was invoked as a kind of paternalist labor leader, as a not labor leader, sorry, as a paternalist labor manager, um, as somebody who could you know, sternly and strictly, but also gently and effectively compel the labor of people on the missions and that he should be invoked as kind of an example for... management in the present. To the extent that one, that actually the, the man who ran the mission in, I have a letter where he wrote the bishop at the time, Bishop Conedy, and asked the bishop in a speech, he said, you know, would it be okay, would you mind making a comparison between Unipro Sarah and Henry E. Huntington? Um, Huntington was a railroad magnate and a union buster and a real estate tycoon, but the founder of this this hotel, was a really big um, kind of Sarah promoter, was saying basically Huntington and Sarah, they're really doing a lot of the same thing because they're both about upbuilding the region. So Sarah was invoked in all kinds of ways as a kind of model for what various forms of settler colonial kind of state and society building would look like in California at this time.
0: And you also take us beyond the U.S. mainland, which I think it's a very important part of uh, your, your book. Um, and you, you move to the Philippines, and, and you show that you know even in this um, in the Philippines, uh, Americans were also erecting both physical and also rhetorical monuments to the history of uh, Spanish friars there, right? Invoking this Catholic past that you've shown in the Midwest and in Southern California. Can you tell us a little bit about the the U.S. imperial relationship with Um, with the Philippines uh, at at that time? um, And and why were Americans invested in celebrating um, the Catholic colonial past in the Philippines?
2: Yeah, you wouldn't think they would be, right? (laughs) Um, So in, you know, to back up a little, in case any kind of listeners don't know the history of the U.S. and the Philippines, the U.S. Navy arrived in the Philippines in 1898 as part of the Spanish-Cuban American War. The Philippines was then a Spanish colony and American forces kind of joined forces with Philippine revolutionaries to fight the Spanish. Um, Then American forces continue after that's done to fight Philippine revolutionaries um, and other Filipino people for control of the archipelago in the Philippine-American War. Uh, This war lasted from 1899 to 1902 officially but actually continued for decades longer in what were considered police actions and during this time the US is also involved in colonial state building in the Philippines and So also during this time, as part of this process, there's a number of Americans going to the Philippines, you know, everybody from soldiers to civil administrators to people involved in infrastructure um, or investment to journalists. And a lot of them are writing about the Philippines for an audience back home because most Americans at the time couldn't find the Philippines on the map. And now all of a sudden it's becoming part of the United States. And there's all kinds of debates about what that's going to look like. So, as people are writing about the Philippines, one of the things they're writing about is the Spanish colonial past in the Philippines, which is not a very distant past. Um, and, you know, given what we know about Marquette and about Sarah, some of what they're doing is pretty predictable. So they're they're talking about the early Spanish Catholic missionaries in the Philippines as kind of founding figures. They're um, in so doing, you know, they're they're kind of weaving the American colonial project in the Philippines into a larger european christian project of colonization uh, which is actually a really interesting thing to know that they're doing because this is very anti-exceptionalist you know this isn't about saying the united states is unlike all european empires it stands on its own instead it's saying no we're you know the us is part of this larger project um so what they're also doing though is they're also contending with a lot of anti-friar sentiment in the Philippines at the time. Because like I said, the Spanish colonial past is not very distant. It's, there's, you know, The people who administered those colonies were still there in the Philippines, many of them. And many of them were what were called at the time Spanish friars. They were Augustinians or Recollect or others um, who had been, during the Spanish colonial period, the kind of de facto imperial administrators. And because of that, Um, had inspired a lot of anti-friar sentiment among even devoutly Catholic Filipinos. This was also kind of anti-colonial sentiment. So American administrators, journalists get there, and it's on one hand, they're writing these really kind of glorifying things about the first missionaries to go to the Philippines in, you know, the 16th century. Um, At the same time, they're confronted with friars that sometimes they're getting to know, they're staying with them as they're traveling around the islands, Um, but they're also the subject of this anti-friar critique. And the way that they, that the American writers deal with this is that they credit some of the friar critique. Um, They say, yeah, you know, there are some bad things that some friars have been doing, but they individualize it, they make it about kind of bad apples. And they refuse a larger structural critique. And ultimately, they end up arguing many of them that, you know, maybe some of these friars were not great. um, But Catholic clerical authority is actually a very useful tool for American colonization. And so you end up with what would seem kind of Like these very peculiar moments where, um, like, the editors of Protestant periodicals in the United States would write, okay, you know, we're not Catholic, but we recognize that it's important to have Catholic priests in the Philippines. And we actually think we should import American trained Catholic priests in the Philippines as part of, um, you know, building a colonial state. Um, And so I think, you know, what you see there. Is similar to what you see, and again, there's a lot of other differences that I go to, I go into in the book. They're also contending with um, and thinking through different Philippine transformations of Catholicism, and in some ways, American Protestants start start to get really um, rigid about Catholic orthodoxy and say, no, like this is true Catholicism and this is not, in response to recognizing, um, you know, some Philippine transformations of Catholicism. Um, But kind of as a whole, what you can see going on in these three sites is a turn towards, as you said, Carlos, an idealized Catholic past in all of these places as a way to think about American, um, the possibilities of American empire in the future in these places. Um, You also see a kind of coming together of Catholics and Protestants in all of these places, because as I should have stressed much more early, you know, it's mostly Protestants who are doing the celebrating of Catholic figures in the Midwest and Southern California and in the Philippines. They're doing it in combination with American Catholics and they're coming together, um, but they're also doing so on the grounds of um, a kind of common European Christianizing, so-called civilizing project. Um, That's the ultimate argument of the book that brings these three sides together.
0: I want to focus on that last point, right, of it's uh, predominantly um, Protestants doing this, yeah. uh, you know, thinking about the, the Catholic past in, in idealized terms. And I think it's fair to say that scholarship that focuses on U.S. Catholic history has been uh, greatly concerned with anti-Catholicism. Right? You even write that um, the rise and fall of American anti-Catholicism narrative has been uh, a salient structuring device. Um, for U.S., for histories of U.S. Uh, Catholicism, right? And, and, and to be sure that there is a, um, that is a salient theme. Um, but you show that we miss something if we focus only on, on anti-Catholicism. What do we miss if we focus on on anti-Catholic rhetoric in American history only? And what do you hope to, to contribute to that?
2: Yeah, thanks. Um... I mean, I think I think, first of all, that it is important to recognize that anti-Catholicism was a kind of powerful force in the United States. Right. Right. Um, But I do think I do think because it's so exclusively focused on, we miss a bunch of things. One of the things we miss is we just can't explain some things like you couldn't explain that headline about, you know, we need American priests in the Philippines if you only thought of this era as an era of anti-Catholicism. And it was an era of recurrent anti-Catholic organizing and um, and rhetoric but if you just focus on anti-Catholicism as kind of your dominating framework, you can't understand this. Um, Second though, and I think this is kind of somewhat more subtle and also more important, I think it's not just that we focus so much on anti-Catholicism. It's that a lot of the history of Catholicism in American culture is structured around this kind of rise and fall of anti-Catholicism narrative, where you've got kind of early anti-Catholicism in the British North American colonies. Um, You go through kind of, you know, Maria Monk, the APA, Paul Blanchard, all of the things that, you know, students of Catholic history know. And then you get to the middle of the 20th century and you see a sharp drop off. And the argument is that this is kind of the end of hegemonic American anti-Catholicism. Um, and this is because the GI Bill makes it possible for, you know, Irish and Italian, many Irish and Italian, Polish Catholics to go to college to Kind of have upward mobility out of Catholic urban neighborhoods and into the um, the suburbs. That you see the Second Vatican Council making Catholic some Catholic practice seem much more familiar to the, to Protestants. Um, that you have the election of the first Catholic president, etc. All of which, again, is true, right? Um, but that that story really leaves out the experience of a lot of Catholics and their relationship to um, various forms of kind of putative American identity at the time. And so historian Matt Kressler has really beautifully argued that this, you know, this story does not make sense at all for African-American Catholics who did not have access to the kind of upward mobility that like, you know, Irish Catholics were getting from the GI Bill and that I just mentioned. And I would add that it also doesn't make sense for um, many non-white Catholics, particularly people in colonial or territorial spaces. Um, It doesn't make sense for many Latinx Catholics. It doesn't make sense for many um, Native American Catholics. And so it's not that the story is wrong but that it doesn't work as a kind of framing device for the history of Catholicism in American culture.
1: Yeah, and you know, (laughs) sorry, Uh, in a similar way to how you're challenging us to think uh, beyond Anti Catholicism, although we're not ignoring it, um, you know, you introduce us to some really uh, important key terms and show us how we can use them um, and how we're going to be challenging us on how to think beyond these notions of the Catholic Church in the US as an immigrant church, you know. Uh, you're introducing us to this idea that the imperial church is to work alongside the narrative of the immigrant church. Can you elaborate on why you think it is important that we consider both these terms simultaneously? Yeah, thanks, Alison. And thanks for also
2: noting that the argument really is that you consider them simultaneously. It's not that one should over, you know, kind of replace the other. Um, And I will say that this notion of the imperial church, which is the title of the book, that this was a bit of a gamble as a title of a book, because, you know, the risk is that this is going to be misread as the imperialist church, which is radically not my argument, but why I went with it anyway and why I think it's a useful term is that it does sit nicely alongside this notion of the immigrant church, which I think is a familiar phrase to anyone who has like taught an introduction to US Catholic history, read any US Catholic history textbooks, often this er era between like roughly the mid 19th century and about the, yeah, the mid 19th century and then about the 1920s. this era is called the era of the immigrant church. And again, like the story about anti-Catholicism, it reflects a reality, right? This was a time of huge immigration of many European Catholics um, and Mexican Catholics to the United States. And that, the, um, that much of what we know about the U.S. Catholic Church was built through this immigration and through some of the kind of like contestations that arose as a result of this. Um, of course, this notion of the immigrant church also leaves out how a number of other people became American Catholics. Right? It wasn't just because people moved to the United States. It's also because in places like the Philippines, the U.S. Southwest and the Far West and other places, the borders of the United States moved to kind of encompass the places where these Catholics were living. And so for them, the way that kind of American Catholic, they became American Catholics, the key term was not immigration, it was empire. Um, And I, of course, am not at all the first person to make this argument, you know, that this has been a standard argument of um, studies of Latinx Catholicism for a long time. Um, What I, you know, what I think I add to this is, an acknowledgement of another side of this story, that the immigrant church narrative is true, not just because there were immigrants, but also because Rhetorically, in the night in the late 19th and early 20th century, often when people thought about the Catholic Church, they also thought about immigration. And this was true for immigrant Catholics themselves, you know, for an Italian Catholic going to an Italian Catholic parish. Um, and it was also true for nativist anti-Catholics who conflated Catholicism and foreignness and immigration a lot. Um, and so what I'm arguing is that just like that, the terms empire and Catholicism were also linked in people's minds in the late 19th and early 20th century. You know, when they were raising statues, when, whether you're Protestant or Catholic, you're raising a statue to your nipro These things made sense as kind of linked terms. But where, whereas we kind of remember that immigration and Catholicism were linked terms, now we've forgotten that empire and Catholicism were linked terms. And so we need to remember that this was some of the way um, this is, you know, this is not only reflective of the history of the late 19th and early 20th century, but it's also re- reflective of the way many people throughout the United States thought about Catholicism and empire in conversation with one another at the time.
0: Your book is is thoroughly um, historical and in very well contextualized, right? Even each case study um, that you focus on, you know, you draw... Uh, common themes, right? But you're also attentive to how they were different as well. So I want to take away from that uh, great historical contextualization by bringing us all of a sudden to to the present. But at the same time, there are some themes um, from your book that recur in our contemporary moment. So for example, in the summer of 2020, uh, just a few months actually after the publication of of the Imperial Church, uh, a statue of a Nipero Serra was toppled in California. And this led the Archbishop of, of San Francisco to say that the toppling of the statue was, quote, an act of the evil one. And you actually wrote an op-ed um, for the San Francisco Chronicle in response to this uh, uh, incident. Can you tell us a little bit about, about what happened and, and perhaps how some of the um, themes in, in, in your book, The Imperial Church, relate to what happened?
2: Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I, I focused on San Francisco and I wrote this op-ed in part because I'm from San Francisco. So this was this was a local event and local history to me. Um, but it was not it. But the toppling of Sarah statues was not a local event that this happened all over California um, and was, in fact, you know, as as you both well know, part of this kind of larger anti-racist, anti-colonialist um, critique of U.S. monumental history that resulted in the summer of 2020 in the toppling of lots of statues of um, Confederate monuments, of figures of Columbus, all kinds of things. Um, and so Sarah was kind of the Sarah statue controversies were kind of part of that. Um, and it's also not over that I should note that just last month, Governor Newsom in California signed a law um, to replace the site of one toppled statue, this one in on the state capitol grounds, to replace it with a memorial and monument to California's indigenous people. Um, this was largely the work of Assemblyman James Ramos, who is a member of the Serrana kahia tribe and um, is himself, I believe, the first California Indian to be elected to the assembly. So this continued, and, and that there continues to be controversy about this, that the, um, you know, that, I think uh, the bishop um, of the who's, you know, speaking about the Sacramento area um, is still has not, you know, criticized this move um, and that. Californians continue to debate what to debate, what to do with statues of Sarah, particularly statues of Sarah in public places. And I should note, because we haven't mentioned on this podcast, that Sarah is actually a saint in the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church, that it's Saint Sarah. And so this adds some complexity for many Catholics to this debate. Um, I think in terms of where my book comes in, I see it as analogous to some of the points that folks were making about the toppling of confederate statues that there were people who were saying okay so part of this is about the fact that it's a statue of a confederate but part of this is also about the context in which these statues were raised that you know many statues of confederate leaders were raised um, not during the confederacy but as part of kind of jim crow era efforts to claim space for white supremacy and so i'm arguing you know this is a different history but i'm arguing that um you know We should look both at the history of Sarah and the Franciscan missionaries, but also at the history of the individual statues in California and how many of them, not all of them, but many of them were raised in this period that I'm writing about. Um, And as part of an argument that, um, you know, the origins of California can be traced back to Spanish Catholic missionaries and that these Um, origins were similar to the nation's, you know, other national origin stories, like the Puritans and the Pilgrims and Marquette, um, and that the United States nation and empire can thus be cast as founded um, by people engaged in Christian evangelization and, quote-unquote, civilization, um, and that this model can be both kind of... um, something to be proud of in the moment and something to guide US action in the future, that this was the argument being made by many of these statues. And so if you want to think about what to do with the statues now, it's also worth contending with what you think about that argument, regardless of what you th- may think about you know, Sarah as an individual. Um, and so that is, I think, where the book comes in. And that's what I tried to get across in, in the op-ed that I wrote.
1: Um, so as we wrap things up here, um... What uh, can you tell us about what you're currently working on? Are there any questions uh, that are lingering from your work on the Imperial Church that you're going to continue pursuing, or you know, have you taken uh, a new direction in your work?
2: Yeah, um, well, thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. I think I've done some kind of other smaller things, but the thing that I'm most engaged in right now is a new book project that is both similar and very different from the Imperial Church. So um, it is is most obviously different in the fact that it is a... uh, history of one single institution, uh, the San Francisco Magdalene Asylum, which was founded by Irish immigrant Sisters of Mercy in the mid 19th century and continued until the 1930s. Um, and as you may guess from the line from the name Magdalene Asylum, it was um, kind of most explicitly intended to be a place for, you know, sexually what would have been considered sexually wayward women and girls. So. Um, women who were involved in sex work or uh, women and girls who were pregnant and unmarried that kind of thing. Um, it ended up, as I'm doing the research, becoming, um, it was much more than that. It, um, many women and girls passed through the Magdalene Asylum, um, among other things, and what got me really interested in it very quickly after it was founded, the sisters who ran it began to take state funding to incarcerate girls who had been sentenced um, by the courts to the local industrial school. There was a scandal at the industrial school. They no longer wanted to take in girls. So girls who were sentenced by the courts ended up getting sent to the Magdalene Asylum. So I see this as part of the... Um, kind of religious and carceral history of California and probably in conversation with the larger religious and carceral history of the United States, particularly in relation to the incarceration of women and girls. Um, So you can see this is a really different project. It's much smaller. I wanted to move from something that was so geographically expansive to something very local. Um, And I've loved doing that in part because I have different kinds of conversations with people about it. I did an interview with the Kushwa Center um, a little while ago that got put up on the, you know, put up on the web and Because of that, I ended up, I now get emails every once in a while from people whose ancestors were at the Magdalene Asylum, who I guess are Googling like Magdalene Asylum history, find my name and then want to know more about their ancestors. So these are really interesting conversations to have. And and I think it's because it's this kind of tightly focused local history. Um, But at the same time, a lot of the concerns that motivated the imperial church are still there. You know, this is, um, I'm interested in, Catholicism in the West and in the context of settler colonialism, I'm interested in um, relationships between um, Catholic institutions and figures and the U.S. state in ways that we may not always expect those relationships to be there. You know, we're used to thinking of sisters involved in schools and hospitals. I think we're less used to thinking of them involved in carceral history. Um, and so these things kind of continue to motivate, to motivate the work on a, on a pretty different project.
0: Okay, we've taken up a good bit of your time. Thank you so much for talking to us for New Books in Catholic Studies.
2: Well, thank you so much, Carlos and Allison. I really enjoyed the
0: opportunity to talk with you both.